Go ahead and keep your Bible out. We are going to continue working through this passage, try to understand what it says. Now, I've mentioned this before in previous sermons and anecdotes. And I'm really good at losing stuff. It's amazing. It's a special skill that God gave me. He gifted some of you with certain gifts. He gifted me with the gift of misplacing my most important possessions. And it's weird how it works. And so let me just remind you, if you've never heard of this, um, I'll go home sometimes for lunch. And I'll walk, you know, 50 feet to my house. And I'll empty my pockets out onto the counter. And when it's time to come back to work, I can't find my stuff. You know, somehow my, my wallet has ended up underneath a pile of papers and a stack of dirty clothes, and my keys have inadvertently been stowed behind my coffee pot, and my phone's been tucked away in the cushions of the couch. It's like an amazing skill and gift. I'm so good at misplacing things that if you followed me around, you'd have to assume that I did it on purpose. I'm so good at hiding stuff, I even deceive myself. And I don't know, maybe y'all are like this. I think it's a special gift that we men have. And um, I've told you my wife makes me put all my stuff in my boots or my shoes or a little on the little shelf that Mr. Matthews hung on the wall for her. That way when I come in, it goes right where it's supposed to go so that she doesn't have to help me find my stuff. But I got to think about that this morning, really, because I was just praying through this passage one more time, trying to understand what it is that God wants to say to you and me. Uh, there's a lot going on in this passage. You've got the event of the transfiguration, Jesus turning shining white. You've got the theological significance of it. You've got the confusion of the disciples trying to figure out what the whole scene's supposed to mean. And then there's us, people 2,000 years later who open up the Bible back in the book of Mark and are met with this very strange passage. And I'm good at hiding stuff, Okay. But I'm not nearly as good as God is at hiding stuff. It seems like in God's wisdom, he chooses to conceal the most important things he does, only to reveal them later for dramatic effect. I want you to think about this. We have the incredible benefit of living in 2022. When we can open up a Bible with 66 books and confidently say this is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved by Him through the ages for our benefit. And so we get to read the beginning of the story, Genesis 1-1, knowing the ending. And so we look back. But if, if you didn't have the New Testament and you only heard the story of God calling a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and promising him that in his old age he would have a son and would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, you would think it was crazy. And if you traced the storyline of Scripture from one generation to the next, it would be hard to believe that this family of misfits and scoundrels could ever hope to bring salvation to the world. God hid his purpose the purpose to redeem a people for his own possession out of every nation, tribe, and language. He hid his purpose through all the ages of history only to reveal it in Christ for dramatic effect. What's concealed or hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. So as good as I am at losing and hiding and concealing all my things from myself, I would suggest to y'all 
that God is better. And in the transfiguration, we have maybe the exclamation point on the whole story. That though Jesus' glory was veiled by his humanity in one moment, for half a second, God peeled back the layers of his human weakness and frailty and revealed to Peter, James, and John who Jesus really was. What was hidden was dramatically unveiled. And so this morning, I want to take the transfiguration as sort of an, a, a principle that shows up in a lots of other ways. And so I'm kind of saying it like this. I'm thinking more than just about what it says about Jesus' life and, and what it says for us as people who long to be in Jesus' kingdom and long to experience the blessings of his reign. And this is what I want you to see this morning. That even when we can't see it or understand it, God is building his kingdom. Even when we can't see it, can't understand it, God is building his kingdom. And I want to give you three reminders that prove this point. Okay, and the first reminder is simple. That when we talk about the kingdom, we need to remember there's always more than meets the eye. There's always more than meets the eye. And I think that's what this transfiguration event brings to the surface. Now, We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. There are a bunch of people here today that I haven't seen in a while. I'm looking at y'all. I'm looking at Diaz. Where'd you go? You're back there. And I just want to say thank y'all for being here today. It's so good to see your faces. But so we, we come to this story in the Gospel of Mark, having already worked our way through the first eight chapters over the past year. And if you haven't been here with us, I'm just going to kind of bring you up to speed real quick. Jesus shows up preaching the nearness of God's kingdom, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's back in Mark chapter 1. And day by day and week after week, he traveled around preaching this message and attracting people who followed. Some of those people he specifically called by name. He said, follow me. And Mark tells us he chose these 12 men to be apostles and to have authority to preach and to cast out demons. But there were also crowds of people who were attracted by the miracles Jesus did, and they started asking themselves, who could this man be? Who is this man who preaches the nearness of God's kingdom and performs these mighty miracles? On the way, these crowds follow him from place to place, and enemies arise who seek to do him in. But meanwhile, these 12 disciples, with the front row seat they have, start to gain insight into his true identity. And back in chapter 8, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And the spokesman of the, the disciples, Peter, says, well, hey, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're one of the prophets. You know, the jury's out on who you are. And Jesus looks at him and he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And in that moment, all this traveling with Jesus over the course of a couple of years by this point, crystallizes for Peter so that he starts to understand that the kingdom Jesus has been announcing is, is actually present in him. He is the king. He's the Christ, the one sent from God and anointed to rule over his people. And yet immediately, Peter's understanding is proven to be insufficient. When Jesus starts to talk about his coming crucifixion and betrayal and suffering, uh, Peter says, no way, Lord, will we ever let that happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him. And Jesus goes into this teaching about the cost of following him and how if you're not willing to lay down your life in order to follow Christ, you're going to lose it. And 
Then he says in chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And we pick up six days later. See, Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples had seen Jesus interact with people. They observed his way of life. They saw that he cared for them deeply and was willing to enter into their brokenness in order to bring God's kingdom power to bear in their life. They'd absorbed all his teaching, allowing the way he talked about the world to infiltrate their broken mind and reconstruct a view of reality through which they could be prepared to preach the gospel. And yet, they were still stuck, really only able to stomach what they could see with their eyes. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples, up onto a mountain for a very specific purpose. He wants to pull back the curtain and give them a peek and preview of who he really is. I mean, in a story of strange events, the transfiguration really stands out as the strangest. I mean, already we've seen Jesus cast out demons and raise up dead little girls and do all kinds of amazing things, but the transfiguration is altogether unique. I mean, there's no parallel story to it anywhere else in Scripture or in any other ancient literature. This is a story that stands out as unique. It even comes down to the word. I mean, one commentator says, the word transfiguration gives this an event a special aura. Isn't that, isn't that cool? An aura, the transfiguration. You know, I don't really know what it means, but I know it sounds cool, right? And so we think about it. It stands out as something significant. The Greek word metamorpho is a little bit familiar to us because we get our English word metamorphosis from it. And so you think of the caterpillar that goes into a cocoon and a few weeks later comes out as a beautiful butterfly that you smash with your truck going down the road, right? <laughs> that's, that's metamorphosis, a change from one thing to the next. The words used throughout the New Testament to describe not gradual incremental change, but radical transformation. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans 12, verse 2, when he says, No longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Peter, James, and John go up this mountain with their teacher. He's caked in dust. His feet are dirty. He's wandered from place to place, teaching and preaching, and in a moment, radical transformation. No longer dusty, but radiant, gleaming white, like a heavenly being. This is strange. There's no naturalistic explanation. Mark says, hey, look, he didn't go down to the cleaners and say, I need you to bleach it and heavy starch, please. He's just glowing, radiant white. Something special is going on. Later, John and Peter will both reflect on this event. John, in John chapter 1 of his gospel, he says, The word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's thinking of this moment on an unnamed mountain when their teacher Jesus took them up and all of a sudden he was radically transformed, his appearance completely altered, and the only explanation was the glory of God was present in him. Peter says it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, We didn't follow cleverly devised tales 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. How does that word hit you? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he'd received glory and honor from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I mean, make no mistake about it. From a human perspective, people had lots of ideas who Jesus was. Who do people say that I am? Well, you're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. You're a great prophet. Peter later calls him rabbi. You're a wonderful teacher. But who was he really? Who was he that was more than met the eye when it came to Jesus? That in that moment, he was transformed, and they saw him for who he really was, the Son of God in all his glory and majesty. See, on that mountain, Peter, James, and John experienced a momentary glimpse of Jesus' true identity. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, from all eternity past, was equal with God. He lived with God as the second person of the Godhead. And as the second person of the Godhead, everything true of God was true of him. So he was equal in power and glory with God the Father. And yet, he didn't choose to selfishly hang on to that glory, but he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant being the born in the likeness of human flesh. And he became obedient and lived an obedient life to God the Father, so that when you looked at him, you just saw a pious, holy man, a great teacher. But Paul said, make no mistake, that when he became obedient, he became obedient to the point of death. And because of death, God raised him up and seated him at the place of honor so that every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is Jesus in all his glory. That is where he is today, and that's where he was for all eternity in the past. But for a moment, he was made a little lower than the angels and took on human flesh and walked like a normal man, getting tired and dirty. But Peter, James, and John on the mountain get a momentary peek of his true identity. The layers are peeled back, and there he is, the Son of God in power and glory. And so when I say to you that there's more to the kingdom than meets the eye, I think this specific instance when Jesus' glory shines through the frailty of his humanity introduces to us a big principle at work. See, as God's beloved son, Jesus was glorious even when his glory was veiled by human weakness. He was glorious even when the brutality of his suffering rings through the pages of the gospel. We're going to get there next spring. And he's glorious now. Even though you and I don't see him, he's seated at God's right hand. And by the Spirit's work in us, we're able to sing songs and think about his greatness and what he's done for us. And occasionally the circumstances of our life peel back. And what normally clouds our view and causes a little hazy glare to overlay our vision of Christ all sweeps away. And we see him for who he really is, the Son of God in glory. Someone who is worth laying down our very lives to follow. Listen, this morning, I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know what circumstances are clouding your view of Christ. I don't know what experiences have 
heaped up on top of everything you've ever heard about him so that you can't see him for who he really is. I, I don't know. I don't know if you feel like God is distant or maybe God's forgotten about you or maybe that God was with you at one point, but he's clearly left you out to dry because you, you can't see him anywhere at work in your life. I want to just tell you, there's more to God's work in the world than what meets the eye. That even when you don't see it, he is still working. And so, I don't know, maybe you're like me and, and you look at the state of the world and you see sad things like the weakness of the church and, and the very failure of God's people to live up to the high calling he's placed on us. Maybe you look at the moral condition of our society and it just wears you out and gets you down. And you just think, hey, look, our world's going to hell in a handbasket. God has abandoned us. He has proven that we are beyond repair. Now, God is at work even when you can't see it. So remember that. There's more to God's kingdom than meets the eye. But the second reminder I want you to see is that God's way of working may not always align with our efforts or our expectations. God's plan may not align with your efforts or your expectations or my efforts or my expectations. And, that, and that's how what we see in Peter's response to this whole event. I mean, can you imagine? I, we're not going to think about this too long. But just allow yourself with your sanctified imagination to be on that mountain with the disciples and you witness the divine glory of Jesus shining through. I mean, can you imagine? I don't know how I would have responded. I'm sure I would have been a lot like Peter. Uh, Mark tells us Peter just about loses his mind um, because look at verse 4 again. It says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And so Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Look, this reminds me, back in October of 2010, I went on a preview tour of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was wrapping up my senior year of college, and me and Ann were getting married, and I knew that my next step was I was going to move off to seminary. And so I'd, my heart had settled on Southern Seminary, and I went, and one of the key events of the weekend was a tour of the president's house. And so the president of Southern Seminary's name is Al Moeller, and I'm a huge fan of him. Uh, and so at the time, we were touring his house, and he has this massive basement library. And so students are just milling about in every place. And I go into the little corner of the library where he has his desk and computer screens and leather chair and fountain pens and all the cool accoutrement of a seminary president, okay? <laughs> Something a kid from Alabama has never seen before. And so I do what every self-respecting person would do. I set myself down in his chair and acted like I was him, okay? And so all the students are milling about, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see Dr. Moeller walk into the room, and here I am in his chair. And I, and I don't know, you know, he told us to make ourselves at home, but maybe I've crossed that line. So I stand up real quick and say to him, hey, Dr. Moeller, um, can you tell me about this book? And just pointed to a random book on the shelf. And so, so he kind of looks at me, we walk over, and he says, yeah, sure, but this book's not very interesting. And uh, so I kind of had that, that moment of collision with greatness, you know. That's what Peter's doing. Peter is totally out of his depth. He's not thinking spiritually about the circumstances, but there he is, and he's the guy who has to say something. So what do you say? Peter's not in tune with what God's doing. He's rather driven by that 
very definitive characteristic that defines us as Americans. Don't just stand there. Do something, Peter. Don't just stand there like an oaf with your mouth hanging open. Figure something to do. And so he goes to him and says, Rabbi, it's great that we're here. Aren't you thankful that me and James and John are right here with you? We've got the perfect plan. Let us build for you guys some tabernacles so we can just stay up here on the mountain. Now, I've gone back and forth all my life. I've heard Peter characterized and you know, lampooned as the fool for this. And then I start to read commentaries this week, and they say, well, Peter's actually a really pious Jew. He's really faithful and committed to the ways of God and longing for the coming kingdom. And so these sets of circumstances must have caused him to raise his antennas. After all, Jesus isn't there by himself. He's there with Elijah. I don't know if you're a student of the Old Testament, but Elijah was a powerful prophet who spoke on God's behalf in the midst of a wicked generation. And he was persecuted for it. At one point, it got so bad, he cried out to God, said, I'm the only prophet left. Elijah was the miracle worker, the raiser of the dead. And at the end of his life, rather than letting him die, God sent a chariot of fire from heaven and carried him up. The people of Jesus' day believed that at the end of time, when God got ready to dwell with his people again, Elijah would show back up and he would announce the coming of the Messiah. And so Peter sees Elijah there and maybe he starts to think, whoa, maybe everything I learned in Sunday school is true. Maybe Elijah is going to come back and he's going to announce the Messiah and here's Jesus, the one I've already claimed is the Christ. But it's not just Elijah. It's Moses too. Moses, the prophet of God, who when the people were slaves in Egypt came and announced to Pharaoh that God had demanded that he let his people go. Moses, who had landed them through the wilderness for 40 years, providing them food to eat and water out of the rocks, who'd gone up onto Mount Sinai and communed with God himself and brought back the covenant and law. Here's Moses again with Elijah. I think Peter's hopes and longings were being fulfilled in that moment, and he recognized it. In fact, there's one passage of Scripture that sort of cemented the deal for me. It's the very last chapter in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. And you don't have to turn there, but you can. If you don't, just listen carefully. Behold the days coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You'll tread down the wicked, for there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Don't you think if you were in Peter's shoes, you'd probably have memorized that passage? Don't you think you'd probably made it your daily prayer? 
God, let the time of your salvation come. Send Elijah to prepare your people to meet with you again. And in that moment, Jesus shining radiant and white, Elijah and Moses standing there with him, Peter says, it's here. The thing we've longed for and prayed for, the thing I only dared to hope when I said you're the Christ, the Son of God, the thing that I've longed for more than anything else is true. God has come again to dwell with his people. Here's the Messiah, and here's Elijah, and here's Moses. Let's build some tabernacles, and let's just hang out here forever. This is all I've ever wanted. I just want to be with God. And so I don't know that he's a fool as much as he's just a man longing to experience more of God and all the promises that he said were going to come true. He's just out of step with his way of doing it. So Peter's ready to build a tabernacle and establish the kingdom right there on the mountain. God says, hey, my plan's not going to match up with that. That's not what I'm here for. And as quickly as the vision appears and Jesus changes, it goes away again. And so they have to head back down the mountain. And as they go, Jesus instructs them in verse 9, not to tell anybody what they've seen until he should rise again from the dead. And so Peter, again, not really sure what's going on, starts to debate with James and John on what he means by that. I, the Greek word says they seized on it. They heard him say something about rising from the dead, and they just couldn't get over it. It's like a stumbling block for them. They kept, what do you think he's talking about, rising from the dead? And they try to come up with an answer for themselves, and maybe they're throwing around their theology, like, well, hey, we know that when Messiah comes, at the end of all things, the, the righteous are going to rise again from their graves. And so maybe that's what he's talking about. But if he's going to rise from the dead, that means he's still talking about having to die. And so Peter asks him, I think maybe to make sure they're on the same page, to make sure that all the expectations he has for the coming kingdom are right. And he says, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come back first? He's thinking about the things he's learned. The scribes have looked at Malachi chapter 4 and said the first thing that's going to happen is Elijah's going to come back and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers. So Elijah's got to come back first, right? And Jesus says, yeah, it's true that Elijah has to come back first, but get this, he already has. And they did to him whatever they wished. Now, Peter's expectations were that Elijah was going to show up and usher in a messianic golden age. And he was going to announce the nearness of the Messiah, and everybody was going to repent of their sins so that the Messiah would walk into you know, blasts of trumpets and red carpets, and everybody would be glad to see him. But Peter's expectations were wrong. In fact, Elijah had come. His name was John the Baptist. He's the one in Mark 1 that says, The prophet Isaiah says, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Peter expected the literal Elijah to show up and preach the nearness of God's kingdom. And Jesus said, hey, Elijah has come, but they did to him whatever they wished. Y'all remember, we, we worked through Mark chapter 1. We've talked about John the Baptist in, in Mark chapter 5. They sent out delegates from Jerusalem to figure out who this John guy was. And then Herod 
finally gets annoyed with him and throws him in jail. And at a drunken party, he agrees to have him beheaded. Right? They did whatever they wanted to Elijah. And some people repented, sure. But he died. You see, God's plan didn't align itself with what Peter thought he should do. Let's build some tabernacles and hang out here on the mountain forever. And it didn't align with Peter's expectations. We're expecting Elijah to come and turn all the people back to you so that you can take up your rightful place in Jerusalem. Instead, Jesus comes back again and again, beating the drum. How is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's like in this moment, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain just so they could get it all clear. That I am the king, and I am bringing a kingdom, but I'm bringing it about in a way that you can't handle and you don't expect. That's the way God works. He works in a way that sometimes defies our best efforts and goes against all our expectations. That's a hard thing. I don't know how your expectations line up with God's plans. I've had some expectations and some of my hardest work for God seems like it's just been brick walls, not open doors. It's all fallen away. I mean, Peter's expectations were of this wonderful messianic age, a political kingdom, the Romans kicked out of Jerusalem, God's law reigning over the face of the earth. And that's not the way it happened. It happened instead through a cross and Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. But sometimes our expectations for what God's going to do in our lives don't match up with his reality. And like Peter, sometimes we have political expectations or, or nationalistic expectations. And those happen when we think that God's way of working in the world ensures that our political candidates or party or country is at the center of his plans. And I love America, but y'all know America's coming to an end someday. The kingdom of God is the only thing that lasts forever. So sometimes we try to filter what God is doing in our world through a lens that just doesn't align with his reality. He's got bigger fish to fry than who wins this November, okay? Sometimes, though, our expectations are more theological. And I think about this a lot because I often get questions from different people about my view of the end times. And I often tell you, honestly, I don't know, okay? I don't know all the details of how things are going to play out. I look at Peter who had a pretty rigid eschatology, and yet God's way of working it out went in a totally different direction. Okay, so sometimes we think that God's going to work things out just the way we thought he would, and he doesn't. And I think it's important to remember that if our favorite preachers and theologians and speakers have all the answers, and we're convinced that they align 100% with God's plan, we ought to loosen up a little bit, give each other some grace. We can differ on some of these secondary or third-level issues. But I think if I'm honest, in my life, the places where my expectations have proved to be misaligned to God's plan have been a lot more personal. Like when I've realized that God's plan for the world is not to make Brad Mills happy. Okay? He's done some things in my life that have not made me happy, made me kind of mad, made me kind of confused. God, I thought you loved me, but what are you doing? It's like the time in 2016 when I had finally finished seminary and had sent out my resume to every church in America. It felt like it. It was only 25. It was only 25, but it felt like a lot of them. And I, and I was convinced 
I was convinced that God had opened a wide door of opportunity for me. Eastside Baptist Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. I sent my resume to that church and I prayed over that church, researched the area, asked people all about it. And I was convinced, I even told somebody, no, I think God's calling me to this church. You know, I never heard from Eastside Baptist Church. I don't know that they even know I exist. I, but I was convinced that's where God wanted me. That was his plan for my life. You know the letdown when I had to finally accept the fact that I was wrong about God's leadership in my life? Oh, man, I was depressed for months. God's not out to make me happy. God's not out to rubber stamp every hope and dream I ever had. Just because I call myself a Christian doesn't mean that everything I do is blessed by him. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that every good idea I have is going to work out. In fact, it seems that despite being a pastor and despite being a Christian, sometimes some of my worst ideas turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to me, and it's my best ideas that turn out to be the worst. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes God's plan doesn't align with our efforts or our expectations. I mean, doesn't he have to tell us this over and over and over? No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of the man. But God's prepared for, though he for those who he loves him. Your ways are not my ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. Doesn't Paul get to the end of Romans chapter 9 and say, Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. It's absolutely unsearchable. Which I think is the smart way of saying, I have no clue what God is doing in my life. It seems like sometimes God delights in hiding the thread of his plan for us. So you look out at the future and you say, okay, God, what do you want for me? What do you want for us? And it seems pretty well hidden, like he just intentionally tucked it away in the place you'd least expect it. And it's only after you go through it and you look back that you see what he was up to all along. He hid it just so he could reveal it to you and have this dramatic effect. And I think that's the key of the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and they get a pretty clear indication that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. And maybe God's plan for Jesus isn't going to align itself with their efforts and their expectations. But they leave with one word ringing in their ear. You know what it is? It's right here in the center of the passage. Verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's it. God, what's your plan? What are you doing in my world? He would say to you this morning, God's kingdom purposes center on Jesus. You may not know the details. You may not always see it. But you can rest assured that God's kingdom purposes center on Jesus. That's the key thing that Peter, James, and John leave the mountain thinking about. They don't have all the answers. But Jesus does. God wants them, the Father wants them to listen to him. Now, I think personally that this is really specific. That he wants them to listen to Jesus' words about the cross. Peter, stop trying to stand in my way. I got a plan here, and there's more to it than meets your eye, and it goes against everything you've ever expected. 
But listen to Jesus when he tells you that he's going to suffer and die and rise again. That's the plan. Don't try to fit it into your round hole. It's a square peg. Just listen to him. Realign your expectations to the words that are coming out of his mouth. When you can't see what I'm doing, just look at Jesus. That's the specific thing the Father wants him to do. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But I also think that there's a bigger point there, don't you? That in life, when you are searching for God's hand around you, and when you can't see it, when it's not obvious what God's doing because the world's going crazy and your life is upside down and the people you thought you could trust have betrayed you and all the rest. Okay, when you don't know what God is doing, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the answer. Everything that God wants to do in your life, he's going to do through Jesus. He's not going to work any other way. He has no other backup plan. He's not like you did the Jesus thing before, but now i got something better for you. There's nothing better than Jesus. He's the beloved son. Listen to him. Focus on him. For me, it's easy to get discouraged when it's not obvious what God's doing around me. When I don't know the next step I'm supposed to take, when I can't put the pieces of it all together just right, it's easy for me to just throw my hands up and give up. But I think God would say to people like me, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Come to him and ask what do I do next, Jesus? And he tells us. He tells us, if anybody would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Following Jesus may turn out to be tougher than you expected. Paul says to the churches he planted in Asia Minor in Acts chapter 14, it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's an understatement. A couple of weeks, I'm going to preach the passage where Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, plug it out. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than hell with two. Following Jesus may be hard. It may be costly, but there's nothing better. And so when making decisions about where to go next doesn't make sense, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So even when you don't see it or understand it, I'm here to be the voice of reason and remind you that God is building his kingdom. And he desperately wants you to be a part of it. He desperately wants you to live within the kingdom reality that Jesus came to bring. That's why the Son of God left his place of glory in heaven and took on human flesh. So that after living a sinless life, he could willingly offer himself up as a sacrifice for everyone who will ever trust in him. For people like me and for people like you, he wants you to experience the forgiveness that he came to bring. He wants you to know the fellowship with God that you were created to experience. He wants you to know the hope of a future with Him. I wonder this morning, have you committed yourself to following the beloved Son? Maybe in your own heart you'd make a commitment today. That you'd say something like, Jesus, I see that you are the beloved Son and I want to follow you. I want to listen to you. I want to build my life on your teaching and way. Maybe you'd recommit yourself to that. Just a few seconds, our band's going to come up here. They're going to lead us in another song. And if you'd like to talk to somebody, I'll be down here praising Jesus, and you can come and interrupt me. Or if you want to grab me after service, I'd love to help you figure out what it would look like for you to listen to Jesus. Will you pray with me?